It happened 81 years ago today. The man who gave up the throne to marry the woman he loved. He gave up everything to be with the woman who had captivated his heart. Who was this romantic guy, the ladies are wondering? King Edward. King Edward VIII did something that monarchs do not have the luxury of doing. He fell in love, but he fell in love with the wrong woman. King Edward was in love with Mrs. Wallace Simpson, who was not only an American, but also a married woman who was already once divorced. So in order to marry the woman he loved, King Edward was willing to give up the British throne. And he did, 81 years ago today, on December 10th, 1936, at 10 a.m. To some, this was the love story of the century. A man gives up the most powerful position in England to be with the woman he loves. King Edward's infatuation with Mrs. Wallace Simpson had grown so extreme that he was severely distracted from his state duties. Some thought she might be a German spy, handing state papers over to the German government. So people were worried about these two lovebirds. And in time, the relationship between King Edward and Mrs. Wallace Simpson came to an impasse when the king received a letter from Alexander Hardinge, the king's private secretary that warned him that the press would not remain silent much longer about their relationship and that the government might resign in mass if their relationship continued. And so King Edward was faced with three options. Give up Mrs. Wallace, the woman he loved, stay with her and the entire government would resign or abdicate and give up the throne. King Edward chose the latter. He chose love. King Edward decided that he wanted to marry Mrs. Wallace Simpson, the woman that he loved. And at 10 a.m. on December 10th, 1936, King Edward VIII, surrounded by his three surviving brothers, signed the six copies of the instrument of abdication. He said, I, Edward VIII, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, King, Emperor of India, do hereby declare my irrevocable determination to renounce the throne for myself and for my descendants and my desire that effect should be given to this instrument of abdication immediately. And just like that, he gave it all up for love. People were not happy about it. People did not like this woman, Mrs. Wallace Simpson. In fact, BBC founder Sir John Reith, after he learned that King Edward III was to abdicate the throne in order to marry her, he said this about Mrs. Wallace Simpson. She is a miserable, second-rate American woman. Or in other words, she was not proper. That's what John Reith wrote in his diaries, and it came out many years later. He wrote, later that day he wrote in his diary, it was awful that all this crisis was caused by a miserable, second-rate American woman. But for King Edward, Wallace Simpson was not a miserable, second-rate American woman. She was his true love. He gave up everything to be with the woman that he loved. And shortly after abdicating the throne, Edward gave a radio address in which he said these words, But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. 
that should remind you of someone. That should remind you of King Jesus. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus gave up the throne of heaven momentarily for 33 years, if you will, so that he could be with the woman that he loved, his bride, his church. And in order to win her, to win her love, Jesus had to enter into the womb of a woman, the womb of a teenage girl. He had to humble himself and become a human being. And that's where we pick up our story in Luke chapter 1. And what this pimple-faced teenage girl named Mary will hear when she gets the shocking news that she is pregnant is this. Rest in the favor of your Savior. When Mary's world gets turned upside down, she will rest in the favor of her Savior. And when your world gets turned upside down by a phone call, by an email, a confession, a conversation... You need to do what Mary does here. You need to learn to rest in the favor of your Savior. Luke chapter 1, beginning of verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So we pick up in our story from last week. We realize that Luke has now fast-forwarded six months into the future, six months into the pregnancy of Elizabeth. But the setting has changed. Now we are in the city of Nazareth. Now this is quite interesting as Luke notes that Gabriel, the messenger of the Lord, came from God to Nazareth. It's staggering enough that an angel would leave the presence of God come to the earth, but for Gabriel, an angel, to leave the presence of God and then appear in Nazareth, of all places, is staggering. Nazareth was a city in Galilee, but it was not an important city by any stretch of the imagination. Nazareth was as podunk and as redneck as you can get in Israel. In fact, we read in John 1.46 that when Philip told Nathanael that they had found Jesus, the Messiah, In Nazareth, Nathanael responded by saying, Can anything good come from Nazareth? We would expect the Lord to show up in Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the most important religious leaders were, but not Nazareth. Could it be that the Messiah would come out of such a podunk place? Yes, because the Lord's ways are mysterious and surprising. As we saw last week, God often takes the seemingly forgotten, the outcast and the insignificant and the misfits, and he shows his kindness and greatness by glorifying himself through them and sometimes in the most surprising ways. 
Last week it was Elizabeth, an old barren woman, advanced in years, who becomes pregnant. This week we have a pimple-faced teenager in one of the most podunk towns in Israel who is about to find out that she will become pregnant with the king of the universe even though she is a virgin. Not only that, but we see Gabriel appearing to Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph. Now, to understand the scenario, we must unpack what it means to be betrothed. Betrothal was a custom whereby a young woman was engaged to a man, but it was more than an engagement. It it was kind of like in between engagement and being married. It was very serious and would not be broken off except for evidence of adultery, on somebody's part. So it's a very serious. And Mary was likely in her teens at this point. And as the text states, she was a virgin. She had no intimate relations with Joseph because they're not married yet. But notice what Gabriel first says to Mary in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. How does Mary respond to this surprise visitor? Well, verse 29 says that she was greatly troubled. She's confused. She knows that she's a sinner. She knows that people would say that she's just a miserable, second-rate Galilean woman. She can't figure out what is happening. Why does Gabriel call her favored one? But notice that Mary is not startled by Gabriel's presence. I love, she's a teenager. I totally would expect if an angel appeared to a teenager, you guys wouldn't be phased by it. You're like, well, I guess an angel. She's not phased by this gigantic, angelic being standing in front of her. She's not frightened by him. Remember, Zechariah was scared to death. What we saw last week, Mary is very comfortable around Gabriel. She's greatly troubled at the saying. She's greatly troubled at the words that come out of his mouth that she is favored. That's what freaks her out, not his presence. She's a teenager. Mary knows that she's been giving her parents grief because she's a teenager. She knows all the drama that's gone on in her house recently. She knows that she hasn't cleaned her room like her mother has asked her to. She knows that she has fought with her siblings over the bathroom while getting ready for school. She knows that earlier that morning she threw a teenager fit and told her mom, I have nothing to wear to school. You never buy me clothes. You never do anything for me. You know, Obi-Wan said that Sith Lords deal in absolutes, and I think teenagers do too. You never give me any food, really? You never buy me any clothes, really? Mary knows she's been this way, and that's why she's troubled. It's why she's struggling with being called a favored one. Why? Because she knows that she is a sinner, and she knows that she has not earned this title, favored one. What troubles Mary is not the angel's presence, not even the, even though you're a virgin, you're getting pregnant message that she hears. That doesn't face her. What troubles Mary is being called favored one. So why does Gabriel front load his message by calling Mary favored one? Because that is exactly what will motivate her to obey. As we will see in verse 38 in a moment, the words that trouble her or what will motivate her to obey. And that's how grace works. Grace motivates us to obey. Shame is sometimes used to motivate people, and it does motivate you. It will motivate you. If you hear preaching that shames you all the time, it will motivate you. 
But shame never changes the heart, which is what we need. Guilt can motivate you. It does. It can, but it can't change the heart. Condemnation can motivate you, but it can't change the heart. I could preach messages that make you feel condemned and leave, make you leave here downtrodden every week, but it would not change your heart. What changes your heart? Grace, hearing that God loves you. God is after our hearts, and the only thing that can change our hearts, transform our hearts, and then motivate us is grace. More on this in a moment. But let's look at this word here in verse 28, favored one. One word in Greek, favored one. The Greek word comes, and it's from the root word, grace. The idea is that one is graced. They receive grace. They have grace bestowed upon them. In this case, Mary is graced by God. God's favor comes upon her from God, and it has nothing to do with anything that Mary has done. And that's how grace works. God bestows his favor based on his good pleasure and not on human effort. God bestows his favor based on his good pleasure, what he wants to do, and not on human effort, anything on our part. That's grace. That's God's favor. It's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. But please understand that grace is a two-sided coin. Grace is not just, it's not merely God's unmerited favor, it's also God's power. It's unlimited power. So depending on the context, grace can mean unmerited favor or unlimited power. And Pastor Greg is going to be preaching next Sunday evening, December 17th, on the unlimited power aspect of grace. So make sure you come out for that. But here in Luke 1, grace is God's unmerited favor that Mary is on the receiving end of. And as we'll see in a moment, it's God's grace. It's his unlimited power then that also empowers Mary to obey. So here's how grace works. We hear words of God's grace to us of his unmerited favor. And then we are empowered by God's grace, his unlimited power. But back to this Greek word here in Luke 1.28, favored one. This word only occurs in one other place in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, where Paul says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There it is, the word blessed us. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us or graced us. Paul is telling us that God's glorious grace comes down to us and we've been blessed, favored in Jesus. Because we are in union with God's beloved Son, we are favored and we are blessed. We have been graced in Jesus. We have been favored in the beloved just like Mary. And it has nothing to do with us. God's not impressed with you. He's impressed with his son. Because of his son, he shows favor and grace to you and me. In Jesus, the beloved son, we are favored. We are beloved sons because we have been favored and blessed and graced in Jesus, the beloved son. 
Paul actually uses this word beloved later on in Ephesians in chapter 5 verse 1 when he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word beloved was used of an only child. In other words, God loves you just as if you were his only child. Isn't that amazing? God loves each of his children just as if they were the only kid that he had. All of that tremendous and overwhelming and very concentrated love flows down to one person. I'm so glad I'm on the receiving end of that. And why am I? And why are you Christian? Why are you loved by God as if you were his only child? It's because you have been favored, you've been graced in the beloved Son of God. And so God says to you right now, Christian, greetings, O favored one. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you did last week. God comes to you right now and says, greetings, O favored one. That wonderful truth ought to calm your troubled heart this morning. If you have a tender conscience like I do, if you have a tender conscience this morning and you wonder if God cares, you wonder if God loves you, you wonder if you are accepted. Some of you even wonder, does God even like me? Does he like me? And listen to these words. Rest in the favor of your Savior. You can rest even though you are a sinner, even though you are messy, even though you are broken, even though you are damaged. If you feel like a miserable, second-rate American man or woman or teenager or child this morning, you can rest because you have been favored in Jesus. Back to our story. In verse 30, Gabriel reassures Mary that she need not be afraid because she has found favor with God. So twice now, Mary has learned that she has found favor with God, and that calms her heart. Then Gabriel tells her that she is not only miraculously pregnant, but the baby to be born will be none other than the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior whom God's people had been looking for since Genesis chapter 3. And that's exactly what Jesus' name means. Jesus, whose Aramaic name is Yeshua, which comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, his name means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord saves. So Jesus' name is Joshua, really. It means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. So Gabriel names Mary's boy for her, and it was one of the most common names of the day. Mary didn't get to pick out some cool, hip, trendy name for her boy. She couldn't use that glorious name found in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, Darkon. Now that's such a cool name, Darkon. I wanted to use it for one of my kids, Darkon Magnus. It sounds so regal, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like a Sith Lord, Darkon Magnus. I didn't get to use that because I didn't discover this name until our first three children were born and they were all boys. And so we had three girls on the back end, and I couldn't convince Heather to let me name one of our girls Darkon. So Mary doesn't get to use Darkon. Gabriel tells her she will name the boy Jesus. She will name her boy Yahweh saves. 
And this baby boy would be the son of the Most High God. And he would rule over the throne of David, rule over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom would never come to an end. Now, in order to understand what is happening here and how significant Gabriel's words are, we have to know a little bit about the Old Testament. We have to know that the kings of Israel and Judah were, for the most part, scoundrels. There were a few good ones, but even they were sinful. They were not the perfect king. Names like Saul and David and Solomon should remind you of how bad these kings were. Adulterers, murderers, womanizers, drunks, idolaters. These guys were bad. And the failure of the Davidic kingdom sets you up for this promise in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did you catch the phrase on the throne of David and over his kingdom? Gabriel uses those exact words. So Gabriel is telling Mary that the promise in Isaiah 9 is coming true inside of her. And she's a virgin. Think about this. It has been some seven to 800 years since Isaiah prophesied. So the nation of Israel has been waiting some seven or 800 years, and still this prophecy, this promise has not come true, has not been fulfilled. And in the last 400 years of those seven to 800 years, God has been silent. They have not heard a word from the Lord in 400 years. And so from Malachi 4, Verses 5 and 6 in the Old Testament, the very end of the Old Testament, to Luke chapter 1 verse 13, it was all crickets. But now, God is speaking again. They had been waiting for a king for so long. They wanted a real king, a true king, one who wouldn't blow it. One who would be faithful, not like the kings in the Old Testament. They wanted an Isaiah chapter 9 kind of king. And Gabriel tells Mary, The king you and all of Israel have been waiting for and longing for all these years, he will be growing inside of you very soon. And because of Jesus, this baby, this king, we are swept up into this story too. We want a king, don't we? We want to be a part of a kingdom that will last forever. And right now, we are a part of God's kingdom that is advancing in this world even right now. But sometimes we want to be king, right? We have all built up our own little kingdoms of self where we want to rule. We want to get our way all the time, don't we? I mean, we should, right? After all, I'm the king. Give me what I want. That's what we all think and live like. Maybe not overtly saying that, but the way that we live proves that we all want to be king. So let me ask you today. Where do you want to rule in your life? Where do you want control in your life? Where have you set up your own little kingdom plans that you desperately want to see realized? As your pastor, let me remind you that your kingdom will not satisfy you like you think it will. Your kingdom will not satisfy you like you think it will. Take it from this 
deposed king. Take it from a guy who has led so many coups against King Jesus, and I have failed every single time. I want my way. I want to rule. I want control. And Jesus loves me enough to say, I'm shutting that stuff down. Jesus loves me enough and loves you enough to come to us to say, I will shut that stuff down so fast. He lovingly frustrates my plans and destroys my kingdom so that I realize his kingdom is the only one worth living for. So let me ask you, where do you want to rule in your life? Where do you want control in your life? Where have you set up your own little kingdom plans that you desperately want to see realized? Listen, give up on that stuff and bend the knee to the real king. What do you need to do today? What do you need to do every day? You need to bend your knee. I need to bend my knee. What do you need to do in the morning when you wake up before you brush your teeth, before you shower, or for some people, before you even have your coffee? They do those in reverse order. Coffee, shower, teeth, because they need coffee so bad. What do you need to do? You need to bend your knee. That's exactly what a pimple-faced teenager in a podunk town in Israel does. She falls on her knees. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary was just a teenager, and she gets this bomb dropped on her. She had no idea how it all happened. She was a virgin. How could she become pregnant? She took a health class at school. She knew the birds and the bees. She knew how this whole pregnant thing worked. So, She's a little confused. How can this be? And then she learns that the Holy Spirit is going to make it happen. Gabriel tells her that nothing is impossible with God, and that's enough for Mary. Mary's like, okay, let me get this straight, Gabriel. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow me. Check. My barren advanced in years can't figure out the internet yet, and Elizabeth is preggers. Check. Nothing is impossible with God. Check. I'm the servant of Yahweh. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be. Let it be. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Wait, I'm Mary. When I find myself in times of trouble, the angel Gabriel comes to me speaking words of wisdom. Okay, Gabe, let it be. Let it be. For all you Beatles fans. Mary obeys. And what empowers her obedience? It's grace. Favor. Two times Mary hears that she's favored, that she is graced, and her response to God's favor and grace is what? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And that's where freedom and joy are found. Let it be, Lord. That's where freedom and joy in the Christian life is found. Let it be, Lord. What will empower you to obey? It's God's grace. And let me ask you something. And Please be honest, okay, here this morning. Are Christians supposed to read their Bibles? Raise your hand if you know this is true, okay? Some of you don't know that's true yet, do you? I'll give you another question. You can catch up. Are Christians supposed to pray? Raise your hand if you believe that's true. 
Okay. Are Christians supposed to love and serve others? Raise your hand. Okay. Are Christians supposed to give financially to their church? Raise your hands if you know this is true. Okay, look around. Oh, you pulled them down. We all know that we're supposed to read our Bibles, don't we? We all know that we're supposed to pray. We all know that we're supposed to love and serve others. We all know, by the show of hands, that we're supposed to give financially to a church and a whole bunch of other stuff we're supposed to do. What motivates us to do that? Because we know it's true because we all acknowledge that we're supposed to do those things. What motivates us to do those things? It's God's grace. Hearing the gospel. Not being shamed or guilted into it. I could shame you and guilt you and condemn you into giving financially at this church, but it would not change your heart. You would do it begrudgingly. God loves what? A cheerful giver? Or one who's condemned and guilted and shamed into giving. We could do that here. We could shame you, but it wouldn't change your heart. It wouldn't transform your heart. What motivates you to do the things that you know you're supposed to do? It's grace. It's hearing about God's grace to you that empowers you by God's grace to obey. It's hearing about Jesus. That's what will change your heart. It's pretty simple. Hearing about Jesus, which is why our sermons are focused on Jesus, because only when you hear about Jesus will your heart be transformed and you want to obey. You want to do things for his glory. Michael Reeves said, I only find that God is my greatest pleasure when you tell me about Jesus. Keep telling me what he's like, and then I find, yes, he's actually more desirable than all those other things that would turn me away. When you know that you are accepted in the beloved, it empowers you. God's favor moved Mary's heart to obey, to say, let it be to me according to your word. Or in other words, I will do what your word says because you're so good to me. Let it be. That's the posture of discipleship. Let it be, Lord, according to your word. That's bending the knee. So what do you, what do you need to do today? Is fall on your knees. You bend your knee to Jesus. And that's where the freedom is and that's where the joy is. The vintage joy that Elizabeth and Mary are experiencing as they experience morning sickness is because they bent their knee to the king. They fell to their knees. They didn't understand it all. They were confused. They had lots and lots of questions which weren't getting answered probably. It seemed impossible to them, but they trusted God's word. So let me ask you this morning, what is happening in your life in this season of Advent, in this season of waiting? Where do you lack understanding to God's ways? Where are you confused? Where does it seem impossible? You can trust God's word because it is the only sure thing in this world. As we saw last week, when you can't trace God's ways, trust God's word. Some of you need to hear this today. Nothing is impossible with God. Some of you need verse 37 right now. What some of us need for Christmas this year is Luke 137. Nothing is impossible with God. With you and with me, there's lots of impossible things, right? It's impossible for you to be the savior of your kids. It's impossible for you to be the savior of your family, the savior of this church, the savior of this city. But with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. Back to our story. Look at verse 39. 
In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary takes off to see her aunt. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, her baby leaps inside of her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She prays a blessing over Mary and the baby in her womb. I mean, can't you feel the joy that is present in this house when you read these verses? Elizabeth is happy that the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah is coming. The King is coming. It's like that hymn, oh, the King is coming, the King is coming. But soon Mary will be singing, oh, the King is kicking, the King is kicking. But before Mary sings, the king is kicking, she sings another song in verses 46 to 56. We have called it the Magnificat. Look, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty and has done great things for me, and holy is his name and his mercy. Is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. How do you respond when you've been favored by God in Christ? You worship. You sing the Magnificat. Grace leads to joy. Vintage joy. Worship. A thrill of hope. Reveling in God's goodness that leads to worship. You sing like Mary. That's what you do. You sing your own version of the Magnificat. The magnificent God is merciful to messy me. The impressively beautiful, elaborate, and extravagant God is merciful to sinful me. The high and holy one humbled himself to help hopeless me. Mary's song reminds us that God descends and cares for the weak and the broken, the damaged, the messy, the hurting, the outcast, the misfit. That he is merciful, that he cares, that he came down to us, miserable, second-rate sinners, and he loves us. As Puritan John Owen said, he loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant. He loves us into heaven. And my favorite quote by John Owen captures the loving heart of Jesus for us when he says this. His heart is glad in us without sorrow. And every day while we live is his wedding day. The thoughts of communion with the saints were the joy of his heart from eternity. The king loves his bride. His heart is glad in us right now without sorrow. His heart is glad in you right now without sorrow. 
You have not disappointed him. It's his wedding day. Every day. Every day is his wedding day. And that means that you can rest in the favor of your Savior. The king left the throne room of heaven to rescue the woman he loves. It's unbelievable. That's a love story. The love story of the century, of the ages. Martin Luther explained that one of the best ways to understand the gospel is by thinking of it as a, as a marriage, a love affair between a king and a queen. And Luther tells the story of this great king who represents Jesus. And this king is, is rich and powerful and wise and kind and good. And he marries this poor girl from a poor podunk village. But she's not just a poor girl. She's actually a prostitute. She's not very proper. And in the story, she represents us, the church. And this girl, this prostitute, could never, on her own, through her own behavior, she could never make herself the king's wife. She could never be good enough to marry the king. She, she could try and clean up her act. She could cut down on the prostitution. She could go to Bible studies and work for the good of her city. She could try to be really good, but none of her actions would deem her worthy to be the king's wife. It's only if the king chooses her to be his wife. That's the only chance that she has. And so the king does choose her to be his wife. And so they get married, the king and the prostitutes. Think about that. And on the wedding day, she tells the king, all that I am, I give to you. And the king says, thanks. Thanks a lot. So she shares with the king all of her dishonor, all of her debts, all of her shady past, all of her wicked ways, all of her diseases, all of her late nights working the streets. Not exactly the best things to share, huh? But then the king speaks to her and he says, my darling, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. And just like that, she is the queen. She has gone from a poor prostitute in a podunk town to becoming the queen. And she doesn't know yet how a queen is supposed to act. She hasn't changed her ways yet. She doesn't know how to behave as a queen. She doesn't know what it means to be proper yet. But she will one day. She'll learn. But she's messy, real messy. She's got baggage. She's rough around the edges. But she's the queen, and all the kingdom is hers. That's the gospel, my friends. The great marriage of King Jesus and his bride. We give to Jesus all of our sins, all of our diseases, all of our baggage, all of our mess, all of our drama, all of our work in the city streets late at night. And he takes it all unto himself on the cross. And then he shares with us all of his life, all of his righteousness, all of his glory, all of his kingdom. Jesus takes our sin and we take his righteousness. And so our identity is changed. No longer the prostitute, now the queen. No longer the prostitute, though we still play the part, don't we? Now the church is the queen united in marriage to her king, and all his kingdom belongs to her. And so Martin Luther then says that the sinner can confidently display his or her sin in the face of death and in the face of hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all of mine is his. Listen to Luther. 
Who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ, that rich and pious husband, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her, since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him. And since she has in her husband, Christ, a righteousness which she may claim as her own and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, My Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. All mine is his, and all his is mine. That's the gospel. We are perfectly accepted in Christ. We have his righteousness. We have been favored. We have been blessed in the beloved. It's not a fairy tale grace. You can rest in the favor of your Savior. The incarnation is all about the king who gave up the throne to win the woman he loves. Good news to weary sinners like us. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared, gift of infinite worth, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Are you weary today? One of the greatest promises in Scripture comes from Isaiah thirty-three seventeen: Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Behold your king today. Before him lowly bend. Fall on your knees and you will experience vintage joy. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and say it's too good to be true but it's not a fairy tale because it is true what amazing love you have for sinners like us only your son deserved to be lavished with your affection and yet because you were so good you have invited us to the party And because we're related to him, we get in. Thank you for all that you are for us. May the Spirit cause our eyes to be opened once again that we would see King Jesus in his beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.